Well, hello, everyone. So great to see you. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm the student ministries pastor here at Agora Bible Fellowship. We are so thankful that you have joined us for another online service. And uh, we just wanted to share with you that our heart for everyone is to uh, be able to be connected with a local body, a local body of believers, a local uh, church. And uh, this online service is really just for uh, a supplement. Uh, so if you're unable to attend uh, because you're out of town for vacation or work, or you just want some extra uh, time in God's Word, this is that's why this online service exists. Uh, but with that said, I got a couple of things I want to just remind you of. The first thing is uh, we love uh, praying for you throughout the week. So you can text us your confidential prayer request to 97000 and Stephanie will receive that and she will respond and uh, we get to pray with you throughout the week. Uh, the other thing is uh, we have a lot going on here at Agora Bio Fellowship. We got uh, tons of life groups and ways to serve and uh, events and ministries. And if you want any additional information in any of those areas, our website is the best place to start. And you can visit us there anytime at agorabible.org, and you can uh, find all the information uh, in any of those areas. Uh, lastly, uh, we are just so thankful for your ongoing generosity. There is no way that we can do what we can do uh, with our ministries uh, without your faithfulness uh, in giving. Uh, so we just ask that you prayerfully consider uh, to donate to our church. Uh, you can go to agorabible.org again, and you can click on the give tab and you can donate there. Well, with that said, go ahead and grab a cup of coffee and a sit down and with your Bibles and we're going to get into God's Word. Thank you. Well, thanks, Chris, and thanks for joining us again online for uh, just our weekly study, just working through 1 Corinthians. And want to encourage you, it's always uh, helpful for looking at the section of Scripture together. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, picking up where we left off last week in verse 18. And I've titled this message, Spiritual Wisdom. Now, here's a little bit of a, a thought-provoking question for you. If you were to grade or assign a grade for the demonstration of human wisdom over the last three years here on planet Earth, what grade would you give us? What grade would you assign to how we've dealt with all of the things that have been thrown our directions in the past three years? In my opinion... Human wisdom has been put on trial and has been left wanting. In fact, it's kind of exposed, in my opinion, if, if anything, in the last couple of years, the, the foolishness of man and the depravity of man and the, uh, really at a global level, really a lot of the curtain has been pulled back and some of the foolishness has been brought to light where the desires, desired outcomes of human wisdom have really, none of them have really, if you think about it, been working at all. Whether it's the uh, getting closer to peace, whether it's eliminating poverty, whether it's uh, dealing with sickness, as you know, whether it's dealing with corruption, crime, prejudices, man, human wisdom is not getting us there. If you think about it, human wisdom really has no opportunity to solve the basic problems of mankind. And unfortunately, never before in mankind has there been a, more, a, a season of more fear, of insecurities, of depression, of people untrusting, people really on edge, people self-centered, people self-destructive. You see, human wisdom is not solving man's basic problems. In this letter that we're working through, Paul is addressing 
a group of people that was still infatuated with human wisdom. In fact, they're trying to figure out how to allow uh, their, their faith to infiltrate the uh, attempts at hu- human wisdom of that time. They really elevated their philosophers almost like, uh, like uh, national heroes. And so they're trying to gain acceptance and credibility in the Greek culture by intellectualizing their faith, but unfortunately, Paul's having to slow them down here and explain to them that the two worlds don't really mesh. The two, there, there's a collision that happens. So he's having a lengthy discussion about the contrasting power of the cross with human wisdom. They don't mesh, they don't work, they don't blend. And so we're going to have a a chance to kind of unpack the differences between the wisdom that the earth offers, that the world offers, versus the wisdom that our God offers, and see where we land. It's definitely a bigger section of Scripture. We're not necessarily following the chapter lines. It's more of the, uh, the topic, and it's a long topic. And so we're going to try to work through some bigger chunks of Scripture. So my request is that you stay focused and try to tag along uh, with me. Uh, buckle in uh, for this section of scripture. Let me pray though before we begin. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to be in your word and we believe that it speaks to things that this world doesn't know how to address. That's why we keep turning to it because it, it speaks to things that we can't solve on our own with the greater intellect or, 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 or uh, slowing down and thinking through things, but instead are things that are spiritually discerned. God, we ask that you'd meet us in this time. We recognize even through this section of scripture that it's uh, through your spirit that opens eyes. And so we invite that even in this time together. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen. So here we are, 1 Corinthians 1, 18. It says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast 
in the Lord. Now, I know we covered a lot there, but you can follow a little bit with the train of thought there, the direction that he's pointing to, and he's starting with really the big idea right out of the, uh, right out of the gates. He explains how the uh, person who is perishing is completely blind to spiritual things. They're completely blind to the idea of, uh, of sin, the idea of judgment, the, the idea of needing rescue. It all sounds like foolishness to that person. You see, if man is left to his own devices, he tries to come up with, uh, with religions that are, uh, are focused on, on human merit and, and uh, us calling the shots. But that's not at all what spiritual wisdom leads us to. The cross provides no room for man's merit. So it seems foolish. The cross neither flatters humans nor makes God more palatable. If you think about it, nobody would ever invent a crucified Messiah and the need to crucify self as a rescue for mankind. In fact, the, the reason we sound like such morons today is we're telling the successful person that none of their achievements that they've achieved in their lifetime are really going to mean or amount to anything in the life to come. Most have no idea that the tick of the clock is moving them closer and closer, getting one day nearer to ultimately separation from God and eternal judgment. All of that sounds like insanity to someone that has rejected the cross. He's understanding that his audience, you see it there in the text, includes both Jewish people and Greek believers. And he's, expl Greeks, uh, he's explaining kind of what both groups wanted. The Jews, if you remember from Jesus' day, what were they always asking Jesus for? They're asking for a sign. They wanted to see the miraculous to prove that he was who he claimed to be. Then when Paul visited on his missionary journeys, these different Greek cities, what were they always wanting to do? They were always wanting to move towards intellectual debate. So he's realizing that both of those things can be a hindrance to what we're preaching. Why it seems like foolishness. Because if you think about it, Christ crucified is really an oxymoron. Christ would be typically associated with power and glory and honor, the, somebody that's celebrated and elevated, but instead Christ crucified, crucified is a picture of shame. And so the two don't seem to mesh, but that is the rescue that our God has offered. He explains to them, and he reminds his audience of their background. He explains that, the, that their background, he says, you're not somebody that came from a place of wisdom. You're not known for your power or for being of noble birth. He's, he's not trying to slam them or, or put them down. He's just reminding them of the amazing news. And what I've titled this section, this idea that the gospel that the crucifixion of Jesus as a substitute for us on that cruel cross is good news for everyone, even the average Joes like you and I. It's not left for only the noble or the righteous, but instead the invitation for everyone. And the gospel, if you think about it, it leaves no room for boasting. In verse 27 there, Paul quotes Isaiah 29, 14. It's interesting if you dig in a little bit to that quote, he's actually uh, referring to uh, a quote where God was 
uh, warning the Jewish leaders to not doubt his provision. Goes on in the story, the account of Israel at that time period in Isaiah 37, the nation of Israel was completely surrounded by their enemies, which were known as the Assyrians. The Assyrian army was surrounded them. And one evening, God sends one angel and takes out 140 or 185,000 soldiers delivering Israel and leaving them with the exact same conclusion that he's trying to point us to right here. The conclusion is this. The example is similar. Rescue has nothing to do with us and our merit, our human effort, our self-created religions. Instead, what does he tell them? The end goal. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We have nothing to hold to based on human wisdom. Continuing in the text, the chapter two, it says, and I, when I came to you, this is Paul talking, brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It's interesting, if you've ever been in a spiritual conversation with somebody, you realize how often those conversations have some sort of a detour, where the person wants to go on to some kind of a tangent to take you off track because people are so resistant to the idea of talking about personal sin and accountability. They would love to talk about any other subject. I love when we're hearing about Paul. He's saying, man, when I showed up, I wasn't going to, uh, I've learned from past mistakes. I wasn't going to be diverted. I was going to stay on task and stick with knowing one thing. What is that one thing that you see that he wants to stay focused on is proclaiming Christ crucified. I'm not going down rabbit trails. And I like that he said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That doesn't mean that Paul all of a sudden has checked his brain at the door, but instead he's saying, I am staying cross-focused. I've heard it said that the Lord needs more cross-eyed preachers, ones that are focused on staying uh, laser uh, directed on the person of Jesus Christ, not getting sucked into peripheral issues. Conversations typically derail. And think about some of the different directions you've had uh, them taken. Maybe somebody that wants to talk about old earth or new earth or about creation, about evolution. They want to detour, uh, detour to those topics or they want to talk about what's on the sin list. Is this a sin? Is that not a sin? Or they want to move to talking about end times things or, or any, anything that gets you off of the topic of Jesus. But what he's wanting to do is make sure that you bring the conversation back to who Jesus is and how he relates to your life. Anytime you're wanting to engage with somebody, that's the end goal. That's what we're trying to do. No unnecessary complexity. That's wanted to be avoided. I was reading this week about the acronym 
uh, KISS, K-I-S-S, was a, a coin term by the U.S. Navy that they determined all the way back in 1960 to avoid overcomplicated system, systems. And, and it actually stands, K-I-S-S, stands for keep it simple, stupid. I, I like that, for at least for myself, just the reminder of not, not getting off track. Make sure you keep the main thing the main thing, staying simple and getting back to the gospel and the cross and what Jesus has done there. I think about it, about, about this uh, often, uh, Charles Spurgeon, he was a, one of the greatest preachers of uh, all, all time, the modern age. He was once asked, why do your sermons all seem to sound the same? He said, that's simple. He said, because I take my text wherever I can find it, and then I make a beeline for the cross. I like that reminder for us, trying to make sure you can go to different directions. That's not saying that there's not value in other topics. That's not saying that we shouldn't address other issues, but making sure that Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross remains a central theme. I was reading this uh, week about a story that Billy Graham told about a, a friend of his who happened to be a, a police officer in Northern England. And on one of his evening shifts that he was responsible for, he came across a, a kid that was on a, in a stairway, was just completely lost, completely crying and a bit panicked because he had, could not figure out where his home was at. And so the police officer sat down with this young kid and started trying to get out from him what his actual address was. He couldn't remember that. So he starts listing a whole bunch of streets in the area, man, one after another and got a little bit disheartening because the kid didn't recognize any one of the streets, but it was interesting. He started thinking through landmarks. He started thinking of what was one of the central things in the town as they had a large white church and had a large white steeple and with a cross right at the top of it. And he asked the kid if he recognized or knew that church and the kid's face lit up. It's the kid's response to, to this police officer was a, a memorable one. He said, listen, he said, if you can get me to the cross, I can find my way home from there. Think about that for a moment. Isn't that what our charge is? Keep bringing people back to the cross, allowing them to find their way home from that instead of getting diverted on trying to, uh, all these debatable topics, things, that, uh, the rabbit trails that we're so uh, attracted to go to. Bring people back to the cross was the idea that Paul was pointing to. He also points out a little bit of some, some of his uh, humanity there. He says, in weakness and in fear, in much trembling was what he was sharing. I don't know. I find some joy in that, seeing the humanity of Paul. Sometimes we like to elevate people more than we should. And he's just pointing out he had insecurities just like you and I do. This idea of even standing in front of this uh, camera right now, there's insecurities that come out. This description that he gives of himself aligns with what his opponents said about him. I looked at 2 Corinthians 10.10 10 this week. It says this about Paul. It said, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Like, wow, that's a lot different than we think of Paul. In fact, there's extra biblical uh, uh, things outside of the New Testament that had descriptions of what Paul was like. One of them I was reading this week says, he was a man of middling size and his hair was scanty and his legs were a little crooked and his knees were far apart and he had large eyes 
and his eyebrows met and his ho- and his nose was somewhat long. <laughs> it's not not definitely not a looker if you think of it. I, for whatever reason, whenever I hear these descriptions of Paul, I can't help thinking of this crazy character from the movie Princess Bride. I don't know if you remember this character. Here's a quick video clip if it re- helps you stir or, remi- or jolt your memory. Check this out for a second. You fell victim to one of the classic blunders. The most famous is never get involved in a land war in Asia, but only slightly less well-known is this. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. (laughs) Yeah, that guy totally cracks me up every time I see him. And for whatever reason, that's the way that I picture Paul. Just this shorter, stout guy, maybe losing a little bit of hair and not necessarily known for his looks, but definitely known for his ability to stay focused on the main thing. It's interesting what he says there. He describes the, it wasn't about his performance. It was about the demonstrations of the spirit and of power. If you think about it, this demonstrations of the spirit and of power, where do you see that demonstrated in Paul's life? He's not talking about going from town to town doing miracles. The demonstrations of the spirit's power was the conversion of people, the the life change that was happening in the wake of people engaging with Paul. Paul was literally showing up to completely unchurched areas and walking away with a church plant in place. Like that's, talk about a demonstration of God's power, the Holy Spirit moving, taking the, the, the broken, lost person, the person that maybe somebody once said, oh, they'll never change. They'll never embrace, uh, em- embrace Jesus Christ. But that's exactly what happened. And that's where we see the demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power. And it's a wonderful reminder for us still today that no one is beyond our God's reach. Continuing in the text, so he's staying focused on the main thing. Verse six says, Yet among the mature, we do not impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decrees before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understand this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things... God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God." And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. All right, well, let me break that down a little bit. Let me let you into a little mini debate that we have in my household. My wife and I, I should just say, we've debated for years or not. Maybe you can help me answer this question. Is it a sin 
to sample grapes in the grocery store before you buy them. My wife and I have gone back and forth. I'm like, well, I think when they're, when they're producing grapes, they understand that at least there's a room for someone to sample before they purchase. She's like, no, no, no. You, you get what you pay for. What you, what, you, uh, what you pick is what you're stuck with. And we, maybe you can help us solve this. But I think about it from a spiritual standpoint, what he's explaining to us here in the text is that what we're, what, what's happening, what's actually presented is spiritual folly or foolishness to many unless, unless they are having their eyes open, spiritually discerned. The truth is the, the, uh, the unspiritual person does not have the ability to make sense out of the spiritual. So we're constantly trying to think or determine who among the people we interact with are the mature that we impart wisdom to. That's an essential understanding for those of us that are trying to engage with the world on spiritual things, is you're constantly looking, you're, you're throwing out lines, if you will, to check to see where the ripe grapes are at and where the sour ones are at. And we've all encountered the sour ones. You throw out a, a, some kind of a, a hook to see if they're interested in spiritual things. And man, it only comes back with a bitter response. But instead, we're intended to keep throwing out lines. And eventually, you'll find someone who's, whose heart is open to wisdom. And that's where we then step up sharing the hidden wisdom as it's described of God the hidden wisdom of God, the, the wisdom that no mind can comprehend. It's not by human discernment, but by, it's been revealed by the goodness and kindness of the Spirit working behind the scenes. He explains this to us by quoting in verse 9, Isaiah 64 and 65, explaining the impossibility of discovering spiritual truth through human wisdom explaining that, that this is just not possible. and the, the human rulers have missed out on this. He says the rulers of this stage were told that they're doomed to pass away. The rulers of this age didn't discern that Jesus was the Messiah. Otherwise, they wouldn't have put him on that cruel cross. But that's exactly what they did. And it's interesting that he's reminding us that those that maybe we elevate, the people that we hold in high esteem as intellectual or wise, he's like, yeah, they're headed towards doom. This idea, all those that we tend to lift up, those who've missed the gospel message that's revealed through Jesus Christ, that's the direction that they're headed. I like the comparison that Paul makes here to help us make sense out of it. He explains this. He says, we all have... Uh, the, the thoughts of our heart, but the only one that actually knows the thoughts of our heart is who? He explains it. We're, our own spirit is the only one that knows what's actually going on in our own heart, other than our spouse if we're married mo most often. But typically here, as he's explaining, he says, that's the same thing with the spirit of God. Who knows the things of God other than the spirit of God? So we're dependent on the Spirit of God. And the good news that it exposes to us is those who are, are spiritually, that their eyes have been opened, they've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit to help make sense out of all of this. It's amazing news in this section that they're given the Spirit of God to help us discern spiritual things. 
concludes or will conclude in these last couple verses, verse 14 through 16, realizing again how dependent we are on the Holy Spirit. It says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Again, this idea of things being spiritually discerned. I don't know if you've had a conversation with somebody about spiritual things. And in the middle of that conversation, you start to see that their, their eyes are glazed over. What you're saying is definitely not connecting with them. There's a friend that I made a number of years back at a local gym here, and I've stayed in touch with them even though I've switched to a different gym. But when I do get together with them, it's interesting. I always kind of check in to see where things are at spiritually. And really when we go back to spiritual things, it's almost always the exact same thing, just kind of a glazed over look. And I don't obviously say it out loud, but in my mind, I'm saying to myself, oh, well, I'm I'm just checking in to see if there's any change in the position of the heart. You see, real, reality is the unbeliever does not have the capacity to understand the things of God without the involvement of the Spirit of God. There's things that are spiritually discerned, we're told here. Otherwise, it just seems like folly to the person that's listening. So much of the work of evangelism happens, if you think about it, on our knees in prayer. It's not, it's not a, hey, I need to figure out how to say this and better and take a, a better angle in this description. It almost always has to do with the timing and the spirit of God's work in somebody's mind and heart. There's a couple of grandparents that come to our church here that I, I really appreciate. Each week in the care journal, really most weeks without fail, they list on there, they list the names of their grandkids, a bunch of grandkids, listing each one of them, the names and pleading and praying for their salvation. They understand what this text is teaching us. It's not a matter of more conversations, although they definitely want to make sure that they've heard the truth of the gospel. But then a lot of times it just comes down to the pursuit of the Holy Spirit behind the scenes, just taking the blinders off. Think about it. Somebody that's, that's uh, 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 unable to see color, somebody that's colorblind, you're like, man, they, there has to be something that changes or they'll never see color. Somebody that's tone deaf, you're like, something has to switch or they'll never be able to hear that. The truth is, is we're spiritually colorblind and we're spiritually tone deaf and without the Holy Spirit's work of opening our ears, opening our eyes, it's not going to happen. So often it has to begin on our knees, pleading for somebody, asking the Lord to do the work that only he can do. I think this is an important truth just as we wrap up to and understanding the unbeliever that we interact with on a regular basis. It's easy for us to get frustrated and be like, man, why, why are they so hard-hearted and against this? Why won't they budge? Here's the truth of the matter is we're surrounded with the spiritually blind. Spiritually blind people, you can't get upset at them for running into walls. You're saying, man, why do they keep going this direction? They're just being consistent with their belief system. And typically their belief system involves a self-God. 
So the reminder for us that these things are spiritually discerned, but when our eyes are open, when the Holy Spirit's moving, all of a sudden the things that seemed like folly when maybe we were younger, all of a sudden you're like, oh, that makes sense. All of a sudden I'm, I'm realizing, I'm seeing the bigger picture here. You see, the big idea in this a rather large section of scripture is kind of one big idea. The idea that human wisdom is not the thing that's going to solve the problem of man. The only solution is the power of the Holy Spirit and the provision of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so that is as a church community, what we want to keep pointing people back to, even if it may seem redundant, keep pointing people to the hope that was offered by Jesus Christ on the cross. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to be in your word and for spending some time just walking through this section and the reminder that our hope is not in man. It never has been, it never should be, and it never will be. Our one hope for rescue, the only thing that's going to matter in 50,000 years from now is what we did with the cross. And I pray for the person that's listening right now that they would be moving towards that. They, they would be drawn to that, recognizing that that's their only hope for rescue. It's not more intellect. It's not more knowledge. It's instead the finished work of Jesus Christ. Even for the person that's maybe never embraced you, Lord, I just pray that even as they're listening right now, they'd maybe slow down, acknowledge their fallen state, call out to you for rescue, embrace what you've done for them on the cross and see their life completely redirected as they surrender to you. And I know that that could happen even in a prayer as we're talking through this now. And so we ask that your spirit would move. You draw people to yourself as only you can. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Again, thanks for being with us online. God bless you.